to mind. We haven't spent a lot of time together, but Tim Carmichael uh, to come and speak this morning. Uh, for a number of years, you all know how much I love East Iowa Bible Camp. I know many of you love East Iowa Bible Camp. How many of you have been to camp this summer already? I know a lot of kids just left. But we got, we got quite a few uh, here and not here this morning who have been there. But as you know, my kids have, have worked at camp, many years have as well. And for the last several years, every summer they come home talking about this guy, Tim Carmichael. Tim Carmichael. I keep hearing this name. And so I started following him on Facebook. I'm like, if my kids are this infatuated with the guy, I think I better, better know what he's all about and what he is. And he keeps coming back to the Silo Bible Camp. He's done it now for how many years? A uh, number of years. A number of years. He's been coming mm-hmm. to the Bible Camp as a mission speaker. Uh, Tim and his wife, Joan, who's seated right down here, and their two adult sons, but they have been uh, commissioned with Ethnos 360, which most of us probably know better as the old New Tribes Mission. And Tim is a, I believe, a Midwest representative, yep. recruiter, jack mm-hmm. of all trades. Preacher. All of that. Now, all of it and above. You travel something like thirty or 40,000 miles a year uh, recruiting and speaking on behalf of Ethnos 360. And God has just given him a passion for young people, a passion for the lost. Uh, they currently make their home in Tennessee, but they rarely ever... Have you been? Have you ever actually slept in your house? A couple of times. A couple of times. You slept yeah. in his house, but not often. They're actually on their way. They were in Michigan last week. They're going to Nebraska as soon as our service is over. But since they were passing through, I snagged and I said, Tim, why don't you come and, and bring God's word to us this morning? So that's a very rambling introduction. It's just my way of saying I'm super excited you're here, yeah. Tim. Uh, Thanks, excited Pastor. excited to hear from God's word uh, through you, and I'm going to let you do the rest of any introduction you want. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thanks, Pastor. He'll say any kind of nice words um, if you pay him enough money, which is, uh, which is great. Yeah. Okay, um, so uh, the reason that your kids get so excited about me being at camp is <clears throat> because at camp, you can do a lot of things that you can't get away with on a Sunday morning service. Um, so I'm going to do my best to uh, be on my absolute best behavior here this morning. Um, but we'll see how it goes. All right, uh, so yeah, we do work with Ethnos 360, um, like Aaron said, the former New Tribes mission. We are the Midwest representatives of uh, Ethnos 360, which means, um, just like Aaron said, we travel all over the country. We go to churches and colleges and schools and youth groups and um, coffee shops and living rooms and any place where we can get a couple of people to sit still long enough, we're going to be talking to them about tribal missions. So there is going to be a little bit of time this morning that I'm going uh, to dedicate and to spend a few moments talking about tribal missions, what's going on in the world today, um, because I would not be doing what I'm supposed to be doing if I don't at least share that. But because it is Sunday morning, this is going to look different than uh, my my normal time of sharing, so we are going to have an actual Sunday morning message from God's Word. So we're with Ethnos 360. Once upon a time, we lived in Papua New Guinea, and uh, we lived, as we lived in Papua New Guinea, Dan, we, oh, that's Tim and Joan, that's what we look like. That's uh, the next slide, that's what we look like over in Papua New Guinea. Um, we were there for about five years. We walked on jungle trails, and we stood next to little jungle houses, and what else did we do? Um, we just did all kinds of Papua New Guinea stuff. And then, um, let's see, what's the next one, Dan? So after about five years, the Lord brought us back here to the States, and he gave us a new ministry, which we absolutely love, and so we travel around speaking, trying to raise up the next generation of missionaries who are going to go and finish this job. Are you seeing a, a pattern in those pictures? Yeah, okay. Is that the last one there, Dan? Oh, there's another one. Okay, so everyone always mentions the blue shirt. They, Tim, why are you always in the blue shirt? Everyone keys in on the blue shirt, which I think is a pretty nice shirt. It's... it's it's a more fashion-forward 
color blue. I, I think that I, I have a fashion blog that I maintain. Maybe I'll give you guys a link for that later. I really think that like the more forward-thinking missionaries are going to switch over to a blue shirt eventually, so we're waiting for that. Um, the one thing nobody ever mentions is that it's always, it's always khaki pants and either work boots or hiking shoes, usually that have a little bit of dirt on them. So I appreciate you guys allowing me to get up here in front of your church with some muddy shoes and, yeah, and without a tie. Now, that might be the reason that I always wear the blue shirt is just to get out of having to wear a tie in some places. So is that the last one there, Dan? Yep. So we're missionaries with Ethnos 360. Um, I think next we have some... Oh, okay. So you saw pictures of my wife, Joan. We have two kids, Connor and Jonas. Connor is married and has a son, lives down in Texas, which is way too far away. And then our youngest son, Jonas just a couple of weeks ago, put a ring on a girl's finger at East Iowa Bible Camp. So, yeah, both. Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. We're loving it. Um, uh, Can't say enough about East Iowa Bible Camp. Um, It will have given us two fantastic daughters-in-law that we've been praying for since long before we ever even knew that they existed, those two. Yeah, so can't say enough about East Iowa Bible Camp. But The picture that I'd like to share with you in a minute is this. I mentioned that our oldest son, Connor, um, he married a girl from Texas who was a counselor at East Iowa Bible Camp, and they moved down to Texas, which is way too far away, and then they turned us into grandparents recently, right? Which is amazing, and it's really cool. The only frustrating part of the whole situation is that we're not allowed to share any baby pictures on social media. They have this really strict, no pictures of the baby on the internet, so we're only able to share pictures of of our grandson, like, in person. Um, but we're not on social media this morning, so <laughs> this is Rowan Carmichael, and he is absolutely fantastic in every way. Now, <laughs> isn't he the best? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> good job. Now... <laughs> Now, I know what I'm about to say might sound, uh, well, just don't throw anything at me. And I, I've been through, let's see, we squeezed, we squeezed five years of Bible school into about seven. Um, and I've never been to seminary, so I, I, I feel like I can say the following statement. Rowan Carmichael could do no wrong. He is the most perfect baby Ever. Like, I could never say that about Connor and Jonas, but for some reason, when, when I held that little bitty grandson, like, I thought, wow, you, you could never do anything wrong ever in my, in my sight. Like, he is just absolutely perfect in every way. And we love him and we miss him, and we wish we could spend more time with him. But like I said, he lives all the way down in Texas. All right, so we're missionaries with New Tribes Mission, now called Ethnos 360. If you're not familiar with us, we are a church-planting, Bible-translating organization. Our job, our purpose, the reason we exist is to help the church in wherever that is, here in the United States or Canada or Mexico, or we have sending, sending countries all over the world, to help the global church plant, and plant churches in language groups where there are none. Our job is to make disciples who are then going to make other disciples who make other disciples, which eventually leads to a completely mature church in language groups where there are no Christians. Those are the places that we go to. So places where if you were born into one of these languages, your only hope for hearing the gospel is that a Christian would leave where they live and go to where you are 
learn your language, and then communicate the gospel in a very clear way so that you then have a chance to meet the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Our job is to do that thing. That's the reason we exist, is to help churches here plant churches in languages where there are no Christians. So how are we doing, like worldwide? How are things going? Well, okay, it's Usually my whole presentation would be on this, so I'm going to have to talk fast, and you guys are going to have to listen fast, okay? Um, we have about 7,000 languages on planet Earth, is what they say. I don't know who's counted them, but I'm going to just take their word for it. 7,000 languages. That doesn't include dialects, right? That means like if we make English number one of those 7,000, that's the English that's spoken here in Iowa, and the English that's spoken over in England, and the English that's spoken in Australia, and English that's spoken like <laughs> out in California, like every Everywhere that they speak English, we'll just make that number one, right? Number two, let's make number two Spanish. That's going to be the Spanish spoken in Kankakee, Illinois, and the Spanish spoken in Guadalajara, and the Spanish spoken everywhere all over the world, anywhere that they speak Spanish, on and on and on. We're going to count languages until we get to 7,000. Of those 7,000 languages, our organization and other organizations like ours that work with unreached people groups have a target of between... 2,200 and 2,500 languages who still haven't heard. Haven't heard a thing. How can that be? 2,000 years after the Great Commission, how can we have at least, at least 2,000 languages, entire languages, without a church, without a Bible, and without enough believers in that language group to reach the people around them, and sometimes without any believers at all? Over 2,000 languages. How can that possibly be? Real quick video. This might explain one of the reasons why that is. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of his return. So, how are we doing? classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population World C. C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they will do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christian, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news, but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now, on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. 
Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right. The vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about financing? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion, and together they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported in bezel fund church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work. But how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep, 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. $5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all missions' money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, Annually, Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions given, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that? Now, I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, one of those reasons, well, one of those reasons revolves around the Great Commission. George Barna released a poll. Um, it's been two years now since it came out. Um, pretty disheartening. A poll of evangelical believers, Christians here in the United States, were asked, what do you know about the Great Commission? And for the first time ever, over 51% of those in our churches who were polled didn't know what the Great Commission was. They couldn't find it in a list. They couldn't guess at what it was. So over half of us Bible-believing Christians, Christians who would be um, on board with reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ, have either never heard of the Great Commission or are confused enough to not be able to find it on a page. Another poll that I just got this morning from a friend this morning, texted it to me, um, a recent poll of Christian school graduates, college graduates from Christian schools here in this country, um, were asked, why do you not consider missions as a career? The number one reason was fear, followed closely by money, 
um, leaving family and learning a language were very small slivers of that pie. But the biggest portion of that pie was fear. And right next to it, smaller portion of the pie, but almost as big as fear, was money. But really, they're not going because of money. They're going because they're afraid they won't have money or they're afraid they will be without money. So really, fear is the largest portion of that reason. Um, And I'd like to look at that this morning. So let's pray, and then what I'd like to do is I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We'll take a quick look at this great commission, and then we're going to turn back a few chapters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open your word. Um, God, I pray that you would help me to remember what it is you would like me to share. Um, Help me, Lord, as I uh, go through the book of Matthew here and point out things that you've taught me um, earlier this summer. It's the name of your son that we pray. Amen. So, we find the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Let's look down at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Matthew 28, verse 16. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is what we call the Great Commission. That was Christ's command to his followers, to his disciples, to those early believers, to go and take this gospel, this message, to those who haven't heard. That's what we call the Great Commission. So if there was confusion on what that is, that's what that is. You guys, if George Barner were to poll you, you could say, yes, I know what the Great Commission is. I have heard of that. Let's look back, flip back to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, we see another little sending out where Christ sends out his disciples on their first mission trip. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at them being sent out. But before that, We're going to flip back even further. So flip back to Matthew chapter 8. And if you see Matthew chapter 8 on your page, unless you're looking at at your phone, you might have to look at the very end of Matthew chapter 7 because we're going to start in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7. Now, in that Great Commission, what was the first thing that Christ said? You guys remember it? Well, before that, in verse 18, Jesus came to him and he said... All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So what I'd like to look at is I'd like a a walk through really fast and have a quick reminder of the authority of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at some things. Um, This is something that the Lord pointed out to me earlier this summer. So Matthew chapter 7 ends after this really cool, almost like a TED talk that Christ gives, right? Um, it's, it's a famous sermon. You guys have heard it before. And in verse 28, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So the way that he taught was unlike anybody else that they had ever heard, right? The scribes, the religious leaders of their day, the guys whose job it was to know God's word and to proclaim it to the people, he taught in a way that had real authority. It was authority that they had never seen. So this guy had authority. He spoke with authority. Let's look at chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleaned. This man, Jesus, had authority 
over disease. Put yourselves in the, in, the, in the position of those 12 disciples, those guys who've decided to follow this man, Jesus, and they're not quite sure who he is. They don't understand how is he able to do the things that he's able to do? How is he able to speak the way that he is? Put, your, put yourself in the shoes of those disciples as you're trying to decide who is this guy that we're following. He just cleansed a leper. He has, he has authority over disease. In verse 5, we see him uh, interacting with this centurion. It, what happened? Well, let's just read it. When it entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And, he's, and he said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, no, 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 Lord, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He said, truly, I tell you, with, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus then goes on and he heals that man's servant without having to go to his house. Jesus had authority over disease, and he had authority that was recognized by others in authority. People in authority recognize others in authority. And this centurion knew that Christ could heal his servant, whether he was near him, close to him, a city away from him, he'd be able to do it because he had the authority to do that. Look down in verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. He had authority over colds. Now that might not sound as, as, as grandiose as some of the other things that we know that Jesus is able to do. How much authority do you have over a cold? Exactly. Let's go down. Um, skipping few, uh, let's skip a few verses. Go to uh, verse 23. When Jesus got in the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This man, Jesus, had authority over nature. He rebuked the waves, and you might try that. Go ahead and try it later. The waves aren't going to listen to you at all. He rebuked the waves. That wasn't what was unusual. What was unusual was that the waves listened to him. And the nature that he had created, that he had spoken into existence all those years back with the Father, obeyed their creator and calmed instantly. He had authority over disease. He taught as one with authority. His authority was recognized by others with authority. He had authority over colds. He had authority over nature. Let's look at verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came and met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I wonder what the disciples thought when that's what those demon-possessed guys said, when they recognized him as the Son of God. And you guys know the story. He's, he makes the, the demons come out of those people, and they go into the swine, and the swine go off, and it causes a, an uproar. He had authority over demons. Chapter 9. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I love this. 
And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves. So picture the story, um, the, the, the setting. Uh, it's always been described to me as a, a house packed with people. They're there wanting to hear this man teach. Um, there's so many people in there. This, this paralyzed man has friends. Um, maybe you remember in Sunday school where it talks about how they opened up the roof and they lowered him down. Um, however they did, they, those friends got their paralyzed friend in there into Jesus' presence. And when he was there, this is what he says. This is great. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And maybe it was in the back of the room. Maybe that's where these religious leaders were. And in the back of the room, they're kind of checking out. They're, they've been going to Jesus every time he's got a crowd around him, and they're listening to him. And they hear him say, your sins are forgiven. And they think in their head, who is this guy to say, your sins are forgiven? And what does Jesus do? This is great. I love this. So... <laughs> This man is blaspheming, is what they're saying in their heads. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? <laughs> Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralyzed person and he says, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Like the biggest, coolest mic drop moment ever. What did the guy do? He rose. He picked up his bed, and he probably ran and jumped all the way home and told everybody that he could about what Jesus had done. How cool is that? This man had authority over sin. You get that? He didn't just tell the guy to rise first. He said, your sins are forgiven. That's a huge claim. And then what did he do to back up that claim, to put that stamp of approval, to say, I'm able to do this? Then he healed this man that had been paralyzed, that everybody in that room knew who he was. Everybody in that room knew that they hadn't seen him walk. Everybody knew he was paralyzed. And he stood and he walked out of there, proving that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, your sins are forgiven. And we could keep going on and on and on. Actually, you know what? Let's stop in verse 18 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Look down at 23, verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He interrupted a funeral. Not a funeral like what we would have here. He interrupted a funeral 2,000 years ago in a very hot and desolate place. A place where people knew what death was looked like, where people knew what death smelled like and felt like. This girl wasn't passed out. This girl wasn't in a coma. This girl was dead, and they were in the middle of a funeral. And what did Jesus do? When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, and he took her by her hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went out throughout that whole district. This man had authority over death. This man who had authority over all of these things, over sin, over death, over nature, over demons, sends out his 12 disciples. And when he sends them out, he does so in a very unusual way. When we were commissioned and sent out as missionaries, um, it was a very great commissioning service. It was uplifting and um, there was a challenge there, um, but it was a very positive sending out. I'd like to read to you the commissioning service for these missionaries that Christ sent out. Over in Matthew chapter 10, let's start in verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious as to how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are going to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Not exactly the commissioning service that I would have wanted if I was being sent out. Anybody been on a short-term mission trip? Yeah? Did, were, you, were you sent out? Did they bring you up to the front of the church and lay hands on you and pray for you and, and, and wish nothing but great things for you? What about the person who organized the mission trip? Did the person who, who roped you into this, this short-term mission trip, um, did they say that they were going to be sending you out as sheep among wolves? Did they lay out this, this long list of horrible things that you might endure and you might face? Let's look back at this again. Because it's not a matter of might. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Really quick, just a note about that. Sheep in the midst of wolves. They knew that they were going to be sent into a very dangerous place. But he tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's a huge difference between going someplace in a rash or brash manner, doing things that draw attention to yourselves that's going to make people hate you. That's not persecution. If, if I deliberately go down a street to witness to people and there's a sign saying, you know, hey, don't knock on people's doors, and I ignore that sign, and I ignore the first couple of houses who, when I knock on their door, they say, hey, you know, I have a sign saying no soliciting. You're just bang, bang, banging on their door, and then finally somebody comes and says, hey, you need to get out of here. You shouldn't walk away thinking, hey, I've been persecuted for the faith. I'm, you know, doing a really good job. No, you're being a bit of a jerk. There's a reason there's a sign there. Wait till there's someplace else and then share Christ with them, right? That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about just going willy-nilly in the hopes that maybe you get to face persecution and get thrown to the wolves. That's not what he's saying. It's saying go to where it's dangerous. Go to where there are snarling, yapping, sharp-toothed wolves, but be smart about it. Be innocent as doves. Do exactly what Christ is going to do in just a couple of chapters when he's thrown to the wolves. And when given the chance to speak, he doesn't defend himself. He acts in a very appropriate manner for what he was going towards in the cross. That's just an aside. That's not what I want to point out. All right, so verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. He didn't say they might. He didn't say in case. He said they will. So think about that. Put yourself in the shoes of those disciples when he says, You're gonna, I'm going to send you out, and they will deliver you over to the courts, and they will flog you. 
Look down a little bit further. You will be dragged before governors and kings. Verse 19, he doesn't say, if they deliver you over, don't be anxious. He says, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious. And if you're a person who likes to mark in your Bible, I would suggest that you go ahead right now in this little section from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, down through verse 24 and 25, go ahead and underline those words or circle them. Underline the wills, underline the wins. Brother will deliver brother over. Children will rise up against their parents. You will be hated for my sake. He's not saying it's a possibility. He's saying it's definitely going to happen. Now, does that fill you with a sense of encouragement? Would you be, would you be fired up and ready to be sent out on this mission trip? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I love the first part of chapter 10. We didn't read it, but if you read through the first part of chapter 10, he gives them abilities to do things that I can't do as a missionary. He's sending them out, and he, they're going to be able to do the types of things that we just read that Jesus was doing, right? Now, when we started out this morning, we started out by reading the Great Commission. Does anybody see a very obvious difference between the Great Commission at the end of this book and this little commissioning service right here in the middle. There's a huge, huge difference. Well, there's a couple of them. So if you, if you threw something out, it would probably be at least one of the things that I'm looking for. Interaction. What do we have? There's a huge difference. Aaron, you're not allowed to. I see you're sitting up. You're, not, you're, you're off the clock this morning. Hmm? Yeah, to make disciples, which is also huge. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, they were sent to a very specific group of people to do a very specific thing. And by the time we get to the end of the book, yes, thank you for pointing that out. They're now to go to all the nations, all of the ethnos. Perfect. That's great. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Jesus didn't go with them. In Matthew chapter 10, he sent them out, and then he went and did something else. And they went out on his authority, speaking in his name, representing him, but on their own. And what's the promise that we see in the Great Commission? Let's look at that again. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises that he's going to go with them. Later on, he sends his Holy Spirit, which indwells us. And everywhere you go, he goes with you. So now go back, and this afternoon, read through those verses from Matthew chapter 10, 16 down through 25. And add a little something to it. I'm not saying to add something to God's word. I'm just saying keep in mind what happens at the end of the book. Because it changes this. If this was our commissioning service, then we would hear this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And then a little reminder, I'm going to go with you. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, but I'm going to go with you. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious for how you're to speak or what you're going to say or what you're going to say before what you will say will be given to you in that hour, and I'm going to go with you. Is it scary to go to some of these places in the world that 
we're going to have to go to in order to finish this job we call the Great Commission? Yeah, it is. Are there things that we should fear? Yeah, sure. It's, it's a scary situation in some places. Just leaving home and leaving family and leaving the familiar things is scary. But we have something that those 12 disciples didn't have. We have the promise that the one who spoke this world into existence is going to go with us as we go. So, when you face those times of persecutions, which you will, believer, if you are living out the life that a believer should live, if you are representing Jesus Christ, which is what you should be doing because you no longer belong to yourself, you've been bought with a price, you belong to someone else now, as you represent the king who the world hates, they will also hate you. So that kind of bad stuff will come your way. But we have this promise, this awesome, wonderful promise that he's going to go with us. So let that be a bit of encouragement for you. Don't let fear keep you from obeying what Christ has commanded us to do. Let's pray. Creator God, thank you for the promise that you will send your son with us. Thank you for the fact that he's not only commanded us to go with all the authority that he has, but that he's also said that he's going to go with us as we go. Father, help us to um, be more obedient. Help us, Lord, to remember that although we have this scene in Revelation of one from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne, um, we're not there yet. And while we know that you're going to get this job finished, help us, Lord, to remember that you left this job for the church to do. Help us to get busy getting it done. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.